The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Amen. Hey guys, if you would, grab your Bible and turn to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2. Second Timothy chapter 2. Today we're concluding this series that we've been in for the last couple of weeks. Um, like I've said to you guys when we started it, uh, doing a series like this, this is not my style, my, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I don't know, it's not my wheelhouse. I'd, I'm more of what's referred to as an expositor. Let's just go through the scriptures. But, but there's a lot of benefit to taking the time to do this. And so that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. Like in light of the things we've looked at, what, what do we need to be aware of and understand moving forward? Um, also, a couple of other announcements real quickly. Um, last week, we talked about this, the idea that uh, our sister church in Uganda, Oasis of Hope Church, and Pastor John Wabiri there, um, they've been in a tenuous relationship with their landlord there for a really long time. Um, they're in an urban setting mostly, and so it's not, um, it's not like there's just open property everywhere like some people would think much of Africa might be. Um, they're they're in an, and actually in an urban setting, and their landlord that they used to have a great relationship passed away, and his son took over, and then he passed away. And as the property has been handed down to different um, um, generations, I guess you would say, uh, the relationship has become quite strained. And so they've been threatened with eviction over and over and over, um, which we've always been able to work through, whether by helping them increase rent or whatever we could just to hang on. But this time, the threat came through the legal system. They've been issued a formal eviction notice. And as of December 31st, our church and the kids that we tend at that church will be homeless. And so what we're trying to do is um, get something off the ground to get them some sense of permanency there. That's really um, a huge push for us right now. Whether that means property and, and putting a tent or something like that up, which, it, you know, we would think of that. We're, we're so spoiled. You know, we would think of that like, oh, you can't have a tent. That's not good enough. And they're like, what's wrong with the tent? I mean, it's, it's just completely different culture. But um, just whatever we can do to try to help them establish a situation of permanency there is what we're doing. So we started last week, doing it again this week, and we'll have the fund open for, for some time and keep reminding you of it, um, taking a love offering up for our brothers and sisters there in, in Uganda. Um, they're researching a couple of pieces of property right now and sending information to us, and we've got people looking at it and contractors looking at it, and some of them have buildings, and we're trying to figure out how some of this would work. Um, when we have something more detailed, I'm, gonna, I'm really excited to be able to put some photos up, show you what we're looking at, um, but we're trying to start even right now with the reality that, you know, time is short, so um, if you would be so moved as to help us and support our brothers and sisters over there, that would be fantastic. So there'll be some men at the door um, it, it, over there, yeah, and it, there'll be some guys at the door collecting that love offering today, um, so that'd be great, and I'll let you know the, the, you know where we are on that as we tally that, actually. Also, if you don't have a Bible with you and you want to be able to rate read along, just stick a hand up nice and high. Um, you can use your app and phone. We're down with that here, but definitely want to make sure you have the opportunity to kind of track along with us. So if you don't have a Bible and you would like one, just stick a hand up nice and high and a kind gentleman named Don will get you one. And uh, so what we're going to do now is I'm going to read 2 Timothy chapter 2 into the first part of chapter 4. And then we're going to really be focusing mostly on um, chapter 4, verse 5. But we're going to read the context and the build-up into that as we start this, and then we'll start going into it. So if you would track with me, starting in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. 
You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. For no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the work of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy so for... Excuse me, let's try that again. The saying is trustworthy for, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people to more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenus and Philetus, who have served from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, and ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. May God perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, Treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having an appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was those of those two men. But you, 
however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord has rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work, And I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, complete with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. And henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray. God, what more can we say? Your word is so beautiful and so perfect. It is so timely, so applicable. It is every bit as true and alive today as it was the day Paul penned these words. And so, God, we stand before your word. We bow under it, Lord. And we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would teach your congregation. You would build your church. You would encourage your people. That we would not lord over your text, but that it would lord over us. And that your will would be done in Heritage Christian Fellowship as it is in heaven. And so, God, I pray that your spirit would be upon me to even speak your words with grace and truth, that everything said would be reflective of your heart, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Oh, my King, my Rock, my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen. Amen. Like I said, this has been a different kind of season for Heritage. We've been looking at this idea of what is our church? What are we about? What is the mission and core values of Heritage Christian Fellowship and what do we stand for? And over the past three weeks, we've been breaking down really our mission statement. The mission statement really for our church can be summarized succinctly by just saying Heritage Christian Fellowship exists to exalt the Lord, to equip the saints, and to engage the world around us for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, I'm a Baptist boy, so we got three E's. That's how we roll. So it's exalt, equip, and engage. 
And so for the last three weeks, we've been taking each of these aspects of our mission and breaking them down with regards to the core values and how the church operates, the things that we hold dear and feel called to by God. And so we've presented these things. And just quickly in review, we went through first, three weeks ago, we went through the idea of exalt, that Heritage Christian Fellowship is a gospel-centered church. And what we mean by that is, is that our understanding of the salvation and grace that God has given us as declared in his gospel motivates everything that we do. So when we worship God, when we serve God, anything we give to God is not done in order to obtain his favor. It's already been given to those who are his. We can't buy something that's already been freely given. And so instead of operating out of fear or out of trying to even the scales, some of us, we think that, man, the scales are against us because our sin is ever before us, as David says. And we can get into this mindset that if we can do enough good things, we'll even the scales. But the reality is there are no such scales. They don't exist. And there's nothing we could do to ever make up for the rebellion and sin that we've done before God. And that's what makes the gospel so beautiful, that we are so undeserving of his grace and that the perfect one would come and shed his very precious blood on the cross on our behalf and then just say, I love you here. That totally should have got like at least 10 amens right there. And so it is that understanding of the gospel right there that motivates everything that we do. It is the core and the heart behind our worship. It is in response to God, not trying to get God's attention. So we desire to be a gospel-centered church that the understanding of the gospel motivates all we do. That heritage is a church that seeks to worship authentically. And so we sing. And we put emphasis in singing. God commands that we sing. He desires that we sing. Music is an important part of every culture in the history of the world because it was created by God as a way of moving and expressing hearts. So we sing. But also, we live We worship in spirit and in truth. We worship with infused hearts and informed minds. And so as we go outside of the walls of this building, we understand that our worship has only just begun and that we seek to leave and to lay our lives down as a continual sacrifice before God, acceptable and pleasing unto him, as Paul teaches. And then thirdly, heritage is a kingdom-minded church, meaning that we exist for the purpose of building the kingdom of God, not making a name for ourselves. It's not about how big can heritage get or how many podcast downloads can we get or how fancy of a building can we get. It is about making the name of God great. And should he bless us with other things, praise God. But our motives are always to exalt and lift up the name of Jesus Christ. Amen? So we exalt. But then we also exist to equip the saints. And as we talked about equipping the saints, we talked about the fact that heritage is theologically driven, meaning what we know about God drives everything that we do. Our understanding and knowledge of who he is shapes us. And so because of that, we understand that the scriptures are the authoritative vessel by which God has revealed himself to us. And so our desire is to learn and know God as he is, not crafting a God to our own liking. But understanding that the scriptures are true and that God is who he says he is and he is as he has declared and not being afraid to come to difficult passages of scripture, even passages we don't fully understand, places with tension and being okay with it because we trust in a loving and gracious but also truthful God as well. And so we don't shy away from things. 
We're going to talk about some cultural challenges in just a minute. They are horribly, horribly disliked in the world around us. And there is, there is great emphasis and push in churches as well to ignore some of the things that God says about some of the cultural changes so that we can fashion a God that is more tasteful to the world around us. But we will do no such thing. Because we are created in the image of God and we will not then turn around and try to create God into our image. He is as he reveals himself to be. And so we are theologically driven. We desire to promote biblical literacy. We believe that the Bible is the vessel by which men know God. And so we want to understand the scriptures and and put effort and emphasis in the right translation, teaching, and understanding of scripture. And then heritage is called to disciple-making. That equipping the saints for the work of the ministry does not stop with a Sunday sermon, but looking at the life of Jesus who took 12 men with him and walked through life with these men in fellowship and in community with one another and teaching as they went, modeling and, if you will, bringing, manifesting, bringing to life the very attributes of God to the world around us, so too we are called to this. So we understand that we're part of a community, heritage, values, genuine community. We've not been saved so that we join an organization. We've been adopted into a family. And so we come alongside one another and we weep with one another and we encourage one another and we slap around one another once in a while when we need to, but we grow together and we desire to work through difficulty and not so much as we see in our culture all around us that, that people can walk together in harmony until hard things come up or disagreements come and then these, these massive polarizing schisms come and we separate and we go, well, I just can't be around you anymore, but the gospel shows us that we can absolutely be committed to one another because Jesus has committed to us in spite of our faults and our follies. And so we can extend the exact same grace and understanding to other people in community. And so we walk with one another and we share with one another. We don't have to pridefully pretend in front of one another because the gospel already assures none of us have it together. And we can love and encourage one another and as an organization we can model the kingdom of God that is to come. And so that's how we equip one another. And then last week we spent some time looking at Engage. This understanding that we exist because we have been put on a mission. And it starts out quite the same way. Heritage is theologically driven. What we know about God determines what we do. And what do we know about God? That he was on mission. That he engaged the world on our behalf. That rather than standing back and waiting on us to achieve some manner of righteousness to reach up to him, that he incarnated himself. He means literally, it's as if he invaded the world and took on our problems literally on the cross. And so we, desiring to be Christians, which means little Christ's, Followers of Jesus take that same understanding that in the world around us there are people that are separated from Jesus and carrying massive burdens and pain and suffering and we desire like our Lord so graciously did with us to invest ourselves and engage the world around us in the same way that Jesus so graciously did for us. How can we not? So we talked about this. We talked about the fact that heritage exists to have a missional focus. And we, we, we kind of blew apart, if you will, that notion of in the world but not of the world, that that's not actually what the Bible says. It's not in the Bible. What it actually says in the Bible, in Jesus' final prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, they are in the world, but I pray not that you remove them from the world, but that you sustain them and that you hold them. And then he says that even as the Father sent me, so I send you. 
So Heritage Christian Fellowship is not a church that's arrived. It's not a church that exists, that we've, we've made it, we've arrived, and so we'll separate from everyone else. But we are a church that has been sent to carry the gospel and the mercy of Jesus Christ into the world around us. Uh, but also that heritage is called to evangelism because no, uh, uh, no act of justice or mercy or love, no caring engagement with the world at all is complete if we have not brought the gospel to bear. If we only feed them and don't share the gospel with them, then they're still dying. And so the desire is, not only is the gospel the motivation for everything that we do, but it is the actual essence of what it is we exist to serve to the world around us. And historically, there's just been massive pendulum swing there. You either have fundamentalist churches that do nothing to engage the culture around, separating from culture. Their desire is to just, we don't want anything to do with the world because that's unbiblical and we will separate And then there's just been these massive pendulum shifts where you get to churches, most recent in our history, things like the emergent church and stuff that are are so desiring to be palatable to the world around and to be able to invest in people and, and to deal with suffering that they're scared to talk about sin and death and Jesus and the gospel. And so there's tension between that. We want to help them, but if we talk about Jesus, they might not want to hear us. That's true. But they need Jesus more than they need a burger. Amen? And so we can't reach out to anyone until we're bringing the gospel to bear as well. There needs to be some harmony in that. And so that's what we desire. So that's what we're called to do. That's what this church is about. So we talked about why it's important to know those things. I mean, there's, there's things, for example, we said this, is, this brings benefit because it gives unity to the body. When we all understand where we're going and what it is that we're doing, when we realize we're on the same team, we're less likely to compete with one another and more likely to celebrate victories with one another and encourage one another. So there's unity in that. Um, It provides clarity. When we understand this is what we're about, this is what we value, and this is where we're going, it makes yes and no much easier. And on a leadership standpoint, when opportunities come our way, when we're making budget decisions, things like that, we can go, okay, How does this use of funds accomplish the mission that God's given us? Or how does this ministry that wants us to be involved accomplish the mission God's given us? And he gives us clear lanes of decision making. Um, And then also it encourages momentum. That we understand that we are, we do have an actual purpose. We are going somewhere. We're not as content to just sit, but we have an actual goal, a bullseye, a target, if you will, that we're drifting towards. And so there's benefit in all those three areas for that. But, but if I can push through the what might sound like a, I don't know, seven steps to highly effective team or something like that, let's just, let's just boil it down to one, one more little thing. I mean, like, why do we really need to know that and understand that stuff? Why can't we just, you might be thinking, some of you have no doubt thought this. That's fine, Jeff. Why, I don't understand why we're taking a month on this. Why is it that we need to understand these things? We've done really well. We're six and a half years old. We've grown a ton. Things are doing really well. I don't understand why we need to know this. Let's just continue on the status quo. And let's just keep going the way we're going, and we should be fine, right? Well, no. That that would be true if heritage existed in a vacuum. But it doesn't. Some of you guys, we talked about this when we did a series on a Wednesday night, it's not long ago, where we did a biblical theology series. We went through the whole Bible in just a couple of months. And if you guys remember, um, first of all, if you're in real estate, what are the first three rules of real estate? Let me hear it nice and loud. Location, location, location. Okay, so those of you that remember the series that we did, what are the first three rules, very similar, of biblical interpretation? Anyone remember? 
Context, context, context. Same, same kind of idea. So when we're reading a letter such as this one to Timothy, understanding the context that Paul's writing to a young pastor in a climate that is becoming increasingly hostile to his mission, to the gospel, to the church, to the calling. There are false teachers rising up from within. That's why Timothy writes about the qualifications of deacons and elders. And he, and he says, this is the kind of men you need to raise up. And he tells them, false teachers are even coming up from within. So you need to raise up some leaders that are going to help you protect your flock. He talks about the encouragement, the mission of sharing the gospel with the world around. He talks about persecution. He talks about those that are falling away from the faith. And he talks about the fact that you can stand firm on the word. When we understand the context of the world at the time this was written, then it just, the words just come to life in a completely different way than if we didn't realize that this is a real guy writing to a real guy at a real time in history. That's the context of this. And so, Likewise, here Heritage Christian Fellowship, you say, can, can we just exist the status quo? Let's just keep doing what we've always been doing. We don't need to worry about where we're going. We don't need to remember mission. That would be true if we operated in a vacuum, but we don't. Heritage and every church in the United States and in the world does not exist in a vacuum, but we are in real climates, real cultures in real times. And right now, in particular, we're in a really interesting and a really challenging one as a church, particularly in the United States. Maybe even more particularly in the Northwest or the Upper Left, if you will, United States. It's a, it's a pretty unique time in history. Well, only so much. So right now, as you guys know, I've been studying up at Western Seminary, working on my master's degree up there. And I got invited this year to be part of this thing. It's called a cohort, where the theology head up there has pulled together 12 pastors from as far away as Las Vegas and Seattle, all over the place. And, and we now, though we're working on our, work, our master's degree like everyone else, we take our classes more directly through him. And so once a month, we go to Western, and we all sit in a room, and we talk. And, th and this particular term has been fascinating. Um, we're studying church history. And so for this fall, we've started at the time of the apostles, and we're going to be working our way all the way up to modern day. And we're studying just the, the entirety in detail of church hist history, trying to understand motives and reasons and climates and all these kinds of things. And it's been fascinating. I think maybe my biggest takeaway from all this so far is that there is nothing new under the sun. The guys in the early church, we, we have this kind of um, idealistic idea about them that they were just so holy and they so had it together and there were never any problems. And we forget about Corinthians. Like that's early church, sleeping with mom, <laughs> right? That was the early church. So, but we have this idealistic view to go, no, they had it all together. And if we could just go back to the simplicity of the early church, things would be so much better. It's not true. I mean, Christians, from the day Jesus ascended into heaven, have been, by the grace of God and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and with his word, just been trying to figure it out to the best of our ability ever since. And so we've been studying this, and there was something really interesting that kind of caught my attention this week. I was up there Friday, and we were talking about um, kind of this major transition that happened in church history. And I have alluded to it before, but I'm going to reiterate um, in, in the early, early church period, like the first 300 years since the apostles, like Jesus ascends into heaven, the first 300 years of church history, um, there, there's a way that we kind of all put together, if you will, or was presented to us uh, of hel helping us kind of remember the era, remember what that time was like. And uh, like good Baptist people, our professors from an old Baptist background, he did just like we did with the E's. He said, we can, we can understand the first 300 years of Christian history with the letter P. 
First 300 years. First of all, it was the time of the patristics. So if you think of the early church fathers, whether that be the apostles themselves, guys like Irenaeus, Ignatius, all these different names, the early founding fathers, if you will, of church history. Those are the patristics. It was a time of proliferation. Christianity started here in Jerusalem, and now it's spreading all throughout the known world, especially the Roman Empire at the time, a time of great, great spreading. But more than anything, when most people think of the first 300 years of Christian history, they think of persecution, because it was a time when Christians were murdered. When we were in Israel in May, we went to a place called Caesarea on the coast, and we stood in this big arena known as the Hippodrome. And the very ground we were standing on, it just made the hair on the back of your neck stand up when they're telling you about the thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians that were brutally murdered on the very, like the ground we were standing on has literally been soaked in so much blood of saints that have gone before us. So it was a great time of persecution. But then something happened. In 313 AD, there was a thing called the, it was the, uh, 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 I forgot the name, Edict of Milan. Anybody ever heard of the Edict of Milan before? Three people, cool. The Edict of Milan. The Edict of Milan was something that the Roman Emperor Constantine signed off on. And what it essentially did, without boring you with history, is it declared, in the Roman Empire, we will from now on treat Christians with benevolence. And so in 313 AD, Constantine converts to Christianity, some argue that, but seems to have, issues this edict of Milan, and it says, from now on, we're not going to persecute Christians anymore. We're going to treat them with love and with kindness. And almost overnight, Christianity went from this grassroots persecuted movement that was hiding in houses and hiding in cities to suddenly a a movement where long flowing robes and big elaborate churches, it, it went from powerless to the power center of the entire world. It was a massive, massive cultural shift at that time. And so the next period of time that kicks off, you can kind of consider it from from the letter C. Forget the P's now, now you're moving on to C's. It's the period of Christendom. The time when Christianity now became a power source. Constantine was the one who set all of these acts in motion. There was the councils who declared and really kind of collected a lot of our doctrine that we use today. But the most important thing for us to understand for our purposes today was the fact that this cultural climate made a dramatic shift from a period of persecution into Christendom. And you would think early on, like the churches would just be like, yes, no more persecution. We can express our beliefs freely, but that was not so. Actually, most of the church leaders, when that happened, got really nervous for the future of Christianity because they had a question in front of them that they were trying to wrestle with. What does it look like now for a church, for a group of people who have expressed allegiance, who are going to follow now a shepherd to be in power? What does it look like now for a community of people who've been hiding and in persecution and who are learning from fishermen and rejected tax collectors and people like this to now be in pomp, in glory, in power, with the robes and all of these sorts of things? What's going to happen to the faith? Will it still withhold its values? Will it still cling tightly to what it believes? I mean, the persecution that existed actually served to further the gospel. What will happen now? Will Christians sit back on their, on, their, you know, on their butts and just be lazy? Will they begin to come, become addicted to the comfort? And it was really interesting because leading up into that time, the heroes really of the early church are who? The martyrs, right? 
the people who gave their life for the sake of the gospel, who died because of their faith. And towards the end of that period, people were actually even volunteering to be killed for the sake of the gospel, because it was believed that there is such, it's just such an incredible honor, there is nothing one could do that would be more glorifying to God than to give their lives for the sake of the gospel. So there were even people that would volunteer, turn themselves in for their faith, and refuse to recant from their beliefs so that they would be killed. And so many of the early church people were like, man, what do we do now? So now all of this is gone, and this persecution that had purified the church, I mean, think about it, it was no small thing to become a Christian in the early church. You knew, I mean, you knew this very likely could cost you your life. So no one went half-heartedly into Christianity. They were either all in or they stayed out. But now it's in power. Now all of a sudden, you can open businesses with your fish symbol on the sign. Now you can advertise on Facebook that you're a Christian-owned business. Now you can do all of these sorts of things. And so how is that going to affect Christianity? And, and what will purify the church now? This is where the monastic movement came from. There were many people that felt that we can't be a part of this. It's too easy. We need to be suffering for Christ. And so they literally withdrew from society, went to the deserts in Egypt, and started uh, monasteries. That's where the monks came from. It was a desire to push back against the newfound creature comforts that Christianity was enjoying because it had come into a position of power. It's fascinating to think through. And that age of Christendom has existed for a really long time time. But now here, our church, as you know, we are part of a continuing work of God that's been going on for over 2,000 years. We're part of that same story. But we're in a different shift now, aren't we? We're in a place now as a country where we're going from the time when Christianity was the power source, the power philosophy, the most influential um, thought processes and leaders and businesses and all of those things in the realm of Christianity to now it's a place of what's referred to now as the post-Christian time frame. That's what the world looks like to us now. Let me explain it to you this way. Um, we talked about the fact that the early church that time was recognized, if you will, for its time of persecution. Would it surprise you now to know that at this particular moment in history, there are more Christians being persecuted for their faith than at any time in the history of the world today. There are more churches in hiding, more Christians in prison, more Christians being killed. And actually, those statistics were before ISIS became kind of the, uh, under the spotlight now. Um, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on that because actually November 2nd coming up is um, the National uh, Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. So we're going to spend some time on it that day. We're going to have some video presentations and materials from Voice of the Martyrs available. So we'll deal with that in detail on November 2nd. Make sure you come. But there is increasing persecution for our brothers and sisters all over the world today on a level that the world's never even seen before. Now, here in America... That kind of persecution, wouldn't, we wouldn't say that that's at an all-time high, but in, in reverse, what we would say is that at an all-time low right now are things like church attendance, biblical literacy, and those sorts of things. Our history, our, our, our U.S. history has never seen such low results, low understanding of just plain biblical principles. Um, i give you an idea. In the United States, 33% of adults today have never even walked through the doors of a church. 33% of adults today, not once have they been to a church. 57% have never sat down and actually tried to read any portion of the Bible on their own. That's over half our country. 
And in this number, it's so high, I almost have a hard time believing it's even true. But it says that 85% of the people living on the West Coast don't actually own a Bible in their home. 85%. Now, keep in mind, Medford, Oregon, for those of you that have never been out of Medford, Oregon, you know we're weird, right? I mean, we just are. This is a different kind of place than pretty much everywhere else on the West Coast and the Northwest. So just understand that. We are, we're like a little part of the Bible belt that just hopped over here. You know what I mean? That's really what it's like. It's not like that everywhere else. And, and bless, what a blessing to be able to teach our kids and raise our kids in such a culture as well, though it has its challenges missionally as well. Biblical illiteracy. 41% of the people in the United States believe Jesus was a sinner just like us. 20% of the people who read the Bible express a strong sense of skepticism when they do. So that's the people that actually do read it. 20% of them say, really skeptical about it though. 25% believe the Bible represses women. 20% believe the Bible has nothing to say whatsoever with regards to pornography. 21% believe the Bible is silent with regards to homosexuality, which probably proves that they're lying about actually reading anything in the first place. 23% believe the Bible, and only 23% of the people who own or read Bibles believe that it is the inspired and literal word of God. 23% of the people who actually read it believe that. Interestingly enough, when people were asked about moral decline in America, 81% of Americans believe that that does exist, and a third of them said the biggest reason that moral decline is happening is because people don't read the Bible. We're blind or stupid or both or something. And then here's this. If you were to define evangelical Christian by these four things, meaning if you were to say, I'm an evangelical Christian, it means that you believe all four, all, not just one or two, but all four of what I'm about to say. Number one, you believe the Bible to be God's true and inspired word. Number two, you believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Number three, you believe individuals need personal conversion. And number four, you believe the gospel needs to be expressed in the world around us outwardly. If you believe all four of those things, you are among 8% of the United States population that believe all four of those. That's stunning. Gone are the Norman Rockwell days where everyone grew up in VBS and vacation Bible school or uh, Sunday school and all those sorts of things. 8%. Christendom is over. We are rapidly moving into the post-Christian era if we're not already fully there ourselves. And this presents some major challenges for the church some major challenges that we need to understand with regards to our mission and calling in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And probably the biggest one and the most formidable one facing our client right now is this issue of homosexual marriage and gay rights in our culture. Um, just this week, the Supreme Court surprised everybody by refusing to overturn law changes within our nation. We have officially given as a nation now our stamp of approval as if we didn't do that already when our president said this years ago but we've officially given our stamp of approval of homosexual marriage as being completely acceptable and okay within the confines of the climate that we live in. And in Oregon in particular, it is legal now. I mean, we were in Israel actually at the time when we got the news that Oregon's laws had changed on this. And so maybe you're saying, or maybe you have friends that are saying like, so, so what, why do you care? Can't you guys just go to church and do your thing? And why do you need to worry about what somebody else is doing? It's none of your business, just stay out of it. Why can't we just do that? There's a lot of reasons. But I'm just going to briefly give you two because we don't have time for a ton of this. And it's just, this could be a, you don't want me getting on this rabbit trail. But number one, God created marriage. And it's not just that, well, he created it so he owns it, though he does. But he created it for a specific purpose. 
And the purpose of marriage was to give glory and honor to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so to take, the, really there's two institutions in the world that God that, uh, intentionally founded and created in order to give vessels or to, to give a demonstration to manifest the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are two, the church and marriage. That's it. And the idea is when people look at our marriage relationships, it should speak something of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unconditional love, staying with you no matter what, all of this kind of stuff. And that's the same thing within the church. That's why we talk about the fact we should not separate from one another just because we had a disagreement. We should have the maturity and humility to work through things knowing that the world watches us and that we exist to manifest the grace and mercy of God who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's what we're called to do. So when we take something that God has declared as holy, and we take that and we go, we'll just tweak it. God invented it and it's got a purpose, I'll just, but I'm going to do whatever I want. We're going to tweak this thing around. And that is a dangerous, dangerous road to go down. It, it is corrupting and it is a perversion of that which God created. And then second of all, we exist, we talked about this last week, to be salt and light. That is our purpose in the world, to be salt and light. And if you remember last week, we talked about salt as being a preservative that there is decay going on in the world and the church exists to be a preservative that, that pushes back against the, the, the coming death. It pushes back against decay and pushes back against the effects of sin to demonstrate this coming kingdom in which sin will be completely eradicated and removed from the equation finally, once and for all, amen, we're waiting on that day. So that's what we exist to do. And if we take the approach Look, we'll let them get married. They can call it whatever they want. It doesn't matter, and we'll be okay with that. We're forgetting the fact that they are imprisoned to sin. And we're forgetting the fact, the fact that no matter what choices someone has made with their life, no matter how they feel that they were born, whatever the case may be, even if they don't know it, they have been imprisoned and they are dying. And so it's not about this political front to stand up and say, we're right and you're wrong and get out of here and Westboro with that stupid sign, God hates fags and picketing all the funerals and all that. That is ridiculous. It is out of a heart of love and concern for people who are dying without Jesus that we have to be different than that. We have to be ones who stand for the truth of God's word and with the gospel of Jesus Christ because they're dying and don't even know that. So it's not arrogance, it's love, and it's sympathy. And it's an understanding that they're in prison to that and we've been in prison to other things. But the reality is that Jesus came to set them free. This is why we exist. But this is a particularly tricky and dangerous time for us as a culture and as a church right now, particularly because the way this whole debate is being framed. It's being framed as an issue of tolerance and as an issue of um, rights, you know, amendment rights, uh, not First Amendment rights, but um, just, just uh, civil rights, that's the word I'm looking for, tolerance and civil rights. See, see, we pride ourselves and we desire to be a tolerant society. And, and if we're talking about the way tolerance used to be, I am completely down with that, I just want you to know. What tolerance used to mean, the classic definition of tolerance is, first of all, to endure pain, like I will tolerate this sermon, <laughs> um, but also to allow or permit without interference. What it means by that is like, if you wanna hold a certain belief, I, I can't change your belief system, I will allow you to believe that even if I disagree. That's what tolerance used to mean. We used to call that freedom of religion. So we used to think of that. That's not the way it is anymore. Tolerance now is being defined as the acceptance 
of views that other people have. Because no longer are you intolerant if you get in the way. Now if you just simply hold a belief that's in opposition to this, you're labeled as intolerant, as a hate group, as uh, racist or sexist or whatever the case may be, a bigot. That's not tolerance. In fact, that's supremely intolerant because it's saying all of these beliefs are true except yours. And so it's almost like this insane pendulum swing that has now happened. But that's, what the, that's the way this argument has been framed, masterfully framed, I should say. And so here we are in a, co- in a country where Christianity has been removed from the pedestal, and we've kind of created our own little uh, um, impromptu, if you will, American religion. The founding fathers are our apostles. America is Israel. Um, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, that's the canon of our scripture. And, and so we, we take all of these kind of things, and this becomes our Bible, if you will. And so the Constitution and First Amendment and all these things now take precedence over the Word of God, which keeps people imprisoned. I love our nation, but that is supremely unhealthy and wrong. And so what we do now is we say the most important thing is that we esteem other people's rights. And so by putting the gay rights movement into this issue of civil rights, it immediately puts Christianity into the category and and, and puts it kind of like into the same civil rights movements we saw in the 60s, women's rights, African-American rights, all of these sort of things where we instantly become ignorant, unlearned, hateful, backwoods, all all those descriptions. That's who we are, are considered now in so many places. And it puts Christianity in a really, really difficult place where at some point, even the beliefs and the ability to operate through that very mindset may very well become absolutely illegal. And, and it's, it's a complete surprise to me to be standing here today even thinking that that could be the case. But don't be foolish. Don't be foolish. Last month in California, California State University System derecognized InterVarsity Christian Fellowship as, an, as a uh, legitimate organization. Now, on the surface, that may seem silly. Half of you probably don't know what InterVarsity Christian Fellowship is. It's like Youth for Christ kind of a thing. It's an on-campus, on-colleges organization for Christians. But, but think about this. This is what they said. We no longer recognize you as a legitimate institution, which means you don't get right to be able to meet in different buildings here on our campus You don't have access to some of the administration and the professors and things like that that you used to. You don't get to come set up a booth when we get together, like have new student fairs and things like that. Essentially, they're just saying you don't exist to us anymore. And on one hand, you go, well, that's like the early church, man. Now they're just going to have to meet in people's apartments instead. So be it. Maybe. but, But think about the implications of this. This isn't a private school. This is the state university system. And the reason that the state university system did this is because they said we will no longer extend benefits to anyone who says you have to adhere to this belief system in order to be in leadership. Now, to clarify, InterVarsity never said that a gay person or homosexual person can't be part of their organization. Never said that. But they do have tenets and bylaws that say to be in leadership in that organization, you do have to uphold the traditional Judeo-Christian, you know, the, the biblical statement of faith, much like the one that we have here at our own church. So think about that. The state of California said, we will no longer extend any benefits to you nor allow you to gather in a formal setting on our campus if you're gonna require people to sign on to Christian beliefs. That's the state. Okay, so if they're doing that in schools today, I mean, really, how, how long is it before we have to wonder, 
as a church. It's not unreasonable. It's coming. It's real. The days, I mean, we're, we're a nonprofit organization. Every church in the United States is a nonprofit organization that is covered by our government and our tax law as a nonprofit organization. That means we receive benefits for the gov- from the government. At one point, do they at least come and say, you know what? If you're going to say you have to adhere to this statement of faith, we're not going to give you that anymore. What will that do? I mean, just practically speaking, what will that do to the mission of the church? How much money will the church lose that goes into missions and things like that? I mean, that's just a tiny little sliver of the issue. But much more so, where does that stop? Because honestly, do you think that those behind the gay rights movement are fine with just getting us to accept that that's there? Absolutely not. This is a move designed to wipe out the influence of Judeo-Christian ethics from the face of the earth, or at least the face of the United States. And it's working. It's happening a lot. And so here we are now, we're in this cultural shift where just like the early church that was watching things go from a period of persecution into a period of power, we're seeing the exact opposite of this. And now church leaders all over the nation are gathering together just like I did with guys last Friday and sitting and looking at one another and going, how are we gonna address this? What's it gonna look like? Now I'll tell you this, in some degrees, some of it's gonna be good for the church. Persecution has always been good for the church. And and not that I'm jumping too far ahead and saying, oh, they're gonna be hanging us soon. Don't go nuts with this. But, But here's what I am saying. It is coming to the point now, right now, where it's gonna cost us something to claim that we're followers of Jesus. I mean, before, it was a good business move to be a part of the big church in town. That's not so much the case anymore like it used to be. And so there is a sense where this lukewarm, pretending, I'm not really there, I agree with this in principle, but Jesus is like a guy I really like and I admire him, but he's not my Lord. Difficulty and persecution has a way of weeding that out and strengthening the church, actually. So in all these things I'm talking about, don't for a second misunderstand me and think that I'm saying, oh, we're in trouble. No. You, have you read the back? Are you among the people that have read a Bible? Jesus wins, amen? Amen. And Jesus is sovereign. He is the ruler. And so nothing happens outside of his sovereign allowance, okay? So we're good. We're still in his hands. He's still on the throne. Everything's going according to plan. We don't have to freak out. But isn't scripture very clear, just the passage we just read in Timothy? Hey, be sober-minded. Understand the climate that you live in. Understand the calling that you have as a church. Make your calling and election sure. Realize what's going on out there. Realize what's going on in here. One of the saddest things in the world is that in many cases, it's the church that's leading the charge in the gay marriage movement. There's a guy named Matthew Vine that just wrote a book called God and the Gay Christian. And in it he said he firmly believes that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. Then he goes on to present an argument why why homosexuality is okay and permitted by scripture only quoting biblical scholars who absolutely do not believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God and would happily say so. And this book has traction. And I don't don't even have the time to go through some of the claims and arguments that he has, but I will tell you this, on our blog today, I put it up last night, if you go to heritagefellowship.net and go to our blog, there's a a rebuttal, if you will, written by Albert Moeller. He's the president of uh, uh, something, 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 cemetery, uh, no, not cemetery, (laughs) seminary, back east, and, uh, and he is a brilliant thinker and, and really a world leader with regards to worldview. In fact, if you're a podcast guy, 
Go on iTunes, and he's got one. It's Al Mohler's. It's called The Briefing. And there's a link to it on that blog page. You can go look up. But every day, it's like 15 minutes long, and he just looks at worldview, things that are going on in the world around us through a Christian worldview. It's brilliant. And so he's put an article out. You can go on our website, and I encourage you. I'm begging you. You need to read this argument because there are people that don't understand the Scriptures well who have had this, as, as Timothy puts it, this idea that we will craft God in a way that's more pleasing to us, and we'll find teachers that tickle our own ears, that fit our own fancy and desires, and they've made biblical arguments that sound convincing. The only problem is the actual Bible. But they've made these arguments saying this is why this is okay. And we need to understand this kind of stuff. And parents, parents, your kids must know this stuff. I mean, one of the reasons that young people are leaving the church when they go off to college is because a lot of kids right now are in church today for the only reason, and this is the reality of it, the only reason they're in church today for many of us is the fact that mom and dad brought them today and said so. So they're under an authority structure that says you'll come to church and you'll adopt this. But, but here's what happens. Our goal as parents is to transition them from an authoritative experience to an actual personal experience with Jesus. Because what happens is, when that child goes off to college, if they're still only going to church because of the authority structure, then what happens when the authority structure changes? Now it's professors, it's peers, it's people out there, mom and dad aren't around anymore, and I'm assuring you, even in many Christian colleges anymore, this stuff's not being taught. And so it's important that we teach our kids, dad, we're gonna hammer this like a nail next weekend. But we need to understand this kind of stuff. And this is the challenge that is coming to the church right now. This is the climate. When we read 1 Timothy, when we read 1 Corinthians, don't read this like some ancient history book. Read this like it got written to you today. Because this is true. And so why is it important for us to remember what is our mission, what are our values? Because when we forget, when we forget our story, we'll end up in exile. And that's what's happening with so much of Christianity. We've forgotten the grace of God. We've forgotten the reality of the gospel. We focused on behavior instead or creature comforts instead or any of those sorts of things instead of understanding the grace, the majesty, and the authority of God. And over a period of time, Christianity is now slipping off to what you could refer to as exile within its own land. This is what happened to people of Israel. When you forget your story, you end up in exile. And so for us, the world, knowing that the world is changing, I'm just going to give you three implications, and then I'm going to cut us loose really quickly. From this text in verse 5 of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, he says, number one, you need to be sober-minded. Churches need to be increasingly aware of what's going on out here, and we need to be a little bit more proactive about what we're doing. Understanding the importance of our mission, not waiting for the climate to determine what we do, but being proactive about that. I've, I told you guys a couple of months ago, I've met um, recently with, uh, um, with our attorney and had some conversations with him about this. And he said he's now meeting with two, three churches a week in this valley alone, especially non-denominational or unaffiliated churches. And he's telling them all the same thing. You better take this seriously. I should tell you, by the way, this particular attorney is not a Christian, and yet he says to us, the threat's real, the law changes coming down the pipe with regards to gay marriage, they're real, and they're coming. And if you don't have something in place before it happens, you're going to be left hanging out to dry. And so we, as long as every other non-denominational church like ours that doesn't have an actual formal, if you will, membership structure, are being heavily pushed to put something into place. 
And the reason is, he said, if you think of it like, uh, what's the golf club, the big famous golf tournament, uh, the Masters, Augusta National. It wasn't until just recently they allowed women, right? But they didn't do that for years. They changed because they'd been to public pressure, not because governments or anyone were imposing laws. The government actually and the court systems, he said, are really reticent to get involved in certain social groups when they have a membership charter already in place. And so he said, what churches are going to have to have if they don't have them already is something that says, I'm signing on to this statement of faith, this core doctrine of beliefs. And then what you do is you say, we only do marriages for those who have signed on to this statement of faith. If you don't have something like that in place, then it's no different than the cake maker in Portland that got in trouble for saying, I don't want to do that wedding. I'll I'll do this wedding. It looks like you're picking and choosing rather than an actual membership benefit to your congregation. And so that might be coming. And some of you have come from that culture that you don't understand church membership. Maybe you've been told that it's awful or controlling or whatever. Just keep your seatbelt on. <laughs> but the mission of the church is more important than a little piece of paper, right? And we want to protect God's mission. If it's doing something like that, I, there's benefit to it too. We'll talk about later if that's what we end up doing. As a leadership board, we're just really studying this and getting counsel from other people. But this is a real thing. And he talked about the fact that those who are the lone rangers are the ones who are going to be the most vulnerable for a lot of the changes coming up. And so I want to share something with you guys this morning. Just in the providence of God, the timing of it has worked out remarkably well for what we're doing. Because this just came down within the last two weeks. Um, I'm not wired to be a lone ranger type of guy. Um, those of you that know me really well know that. My wife, she's more introverted. Um, I'm extrovert. We would have company every single night if it was up to me, and it would drive her insane. Like, I'm that guy. And, and when it comes to even doing what we do, I, I, I thrive off of the partnership with others. And so we have good friendships with other churches in town. I get together once a month, just did last week with a group of pastors, and, and it's fantastic. I love it. But this idea of having some committed formal backing, encouragement, training, accountability, all of this sort of stuff that we've never really had is just something that, that I've longed for for a long, long time. But the question's always like, where do you fit? Like, we're not Presbyterian, we're not Baptist, we're, not, we're kind of a mutt. So, you know, no, no one's letting mutts in dog shows. You know what I'm saying? <clears throat> but for about the past year, um, a friend of mine that many of you guys know, you guys know Lauren Anderson from the Fellowship at Bend in Bend, Oregon? So um, he went through an enrollment process where he signed up and joined on with uh, an organization that's called the Acts 29 Church Planning Network. Um, Acts 29 was originally founded up in the Northwest at Mars Hill, went through massive leadership and structural changes, and now is headquartered in Dallas, Texas, some good old Bible Belt country down there. The president of Acts 29 is a name you hear me quote all the time, Matt Chandler, my favorite preacher in the United States. He's fantastic. Humble man of God. And um, they've actually sort of been pursuing us for a while, but we've been real nervous about that kind of a thing because some of their doctrinal background was way stricter than we like, and we're more like we only want to deal with essentials, and you guys, we've talked about this over the last couple of weeks, and, and so we don't need to go into too much detail of it, but we've spent really the last year in really intentional back and forth or, um, uh, interviews and, and assessment and all this stuff with the Acts 29 network for the last couple of years. In fact, about... Um, Oh, what was it, Bronwyn? About a month ago, I guess, um, I, we, we went to the assessment interview. In, uh, we, it was actually up in Lebanon, Oregon. And um, 
really through the whole summer, I've been writing paper after paper after paper. I think when my entire packet was done, um, the, the entire assessment thing, which is everything from analyzing your theology to even questions like, a couple comes to you, they just lost a baby, how are you going to approach it? I mean, just intense assessment process. I think my packet, when it was done, was around, I don't know, 80 to 100 pages typed single-spaced. It's massive. It was a really healthy process, though, for us and for our leadership to be able to talk through those things as we're going through and to solidify what would we do, who are we, and those sorts of things. Um, and so my wife and I, about a month ago, went up to an assessment interview. And all the way, we've been really careful, and you can talk with our elders, and they can, they can tell you this as well, not wanting to have to change to be able to link up with some other people, but if there's a place that we fit that gives us accountability and training and resources and brotherhood and all those things, we would love to do that. So we've been very specific and painfully clear about our beliefs in a lot of different areas. And so we went up about a month ago to this interview, and there were three different pastors, and one of them, the, the pastor's wife, is there as well, and the interview's for me and Bronwyn. And really, the assessment's not so much about the church, it's about me. Like, who is he? What kind of leader is he? How does he lead his family? That's a huge thing in Acts 29. Um, what's the leadership style of the church? Is this a dictator that's just going to lead everything on his own? What are the financial uh, uh, safeguards in place? There's all sorts of things for an existing church before you can, can affiliate with them. And so my wife and I went and we were just praying, Lord, just please give us some clarity if this is what we're really supposed to do because it seems like everything that they do would just feed so much of what I've just been so hungry for for so long. It would be so beneficial for our church in light of the current climate changes that are going on here in our, 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 our country. Um, but the night before, we went and met this guy named Brad the night before and, and he was one of the assessment guys. I'd never met him before and he pulled up on a full-on ape hanger Harley with a beard that would make the Duck Dynasty dudes jealous. And so the Bible Belt boy in me was like, what are we doing? And so we went into this interview just praying, Lord, is it just, will you please make this clear? Let me tell you guys, that was one of the best three hours I've had in a long, long time. Those guys pastored us. And, and I don't know if you know this or not, but I may be your pastor, but I need a pastor. Like, I, I, can't, I can't be trusted to shepherd my own heart all the time. And I need people. That's what the elder board is here for. And that's what these guys were doing. And as my wife was talking about difficult seasons with them, and with tears coming down her face as she was telling about difficult seasons and, and stuff, to see these men and this woman that was there at this interview leaning in and caring for my wife, I, I was one. And, and just as we started to interact with them, and then, then remember last week, we, or was, was it last week, that we left real early and flew to, to Washington? took the, the other pastors here from the church and we went to the Acts 29 Northwest gathering where they sort of unveiled their uh, strategic plan for church planning and building up more healthy churches in the Northwest. And so we got to spend some time with those guys and man, it was just incredible. The, the first night that we were there, the entire time was just spent in prayer for one another and just worshiping. Um, it was like a good old Pentecostal meeting. <laughs> it was great. Um, and just as we've spent time with them and talking through things as elders and stuff, man, we're getting late, aren't we? I'm sorry, but this is important. We just were like, man, there's, there's, there's a word in the Old Testament where he says, it's Rehoboth. There's room for me here. And so we have been now formally approved and, and given permission to actually become part of the Acts 29 church planning network. The idea is, if you don't, don't look for Acts 29 in the Bible, you'll think they're heretics. There is no Acts 29 in the Bible, just so you know. It stops at 28. The idea is we are the continuation of that story. Make sense? Um, what does it change for you guys? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. 
Um, what it does is it provides accountability for your pastors and your leaders. It provides financial oversight. It provides resources for us to grow as leaders, to grow as a staff, and for you. For example, there's a men's retreat. Have you guys seen that Washington Family Ranch where they do the Young Life Camp? It's got the go-kart track and all that crazy stuff. Men, in March, men's retreat up there. And all the different churches are going to come together. They're bringing in some national speakers. So there's opportunities like that to be a part of things. Um, and then also we will be now partnering with them collectively to pull together resources to be planting churches all over the world, frankly. In fact, there's already a guy in Albany wants to plant in Ashland in two years. And so at a certain point, he'll actually intern here and work with us here as he learns the context of the place that he's going to plant. And then we get to be a part of that exciting work in planting churches throughout the Northwest. Um, and, and then just as much or more than anything, it's just good for my soul and good for the souls of the pastors. We even have a, a website we can go into and have access to over 600 churches all over the world and be able to say, guys, have you ever seen anything like this? We're dealing with this. Is our church weird? Is it just you? What, what's going on? And, and it's just a helpful thing for us. And it helps us in this idea of being sober-minded. Gives us this, these resources. We get legal resources. We get accountability. We're now connected to a group of brothers. By the way, still autonomous church. Acts 29 is made up of Baptists and Presbyterians and all, all sorts that are part of the network. But gives us those sorts of resources so that we can work together in the environment that we live in today as the climate changes. And we can do just as Timothy says, to a better and better degree. To be aware. Just know what's coming. Things are going on. And also gain access to training and discipleship to get better at what we do. So much of what we've done, we've just had to learn on the fly. That's lame. <laughs> you know that? Amen to that's lame? How many of you ever did something to your car and then went, oops, because you didn't read that? You know what I mean? So there's that. Number two, and we got to go quick. Number two, he says in 2 Timothy 2.5, stand firm. Stand firm. Understand something, Christians. It's only going to get harder from here. And you're going to be presented with opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to say, I don't need to tell that guy I'm saved. I don't, you can be like Peter going from fire to fire and going, oh, you got me confused with someone else. I like to think of Jesus' prayer even to Peter. Man, Satan desires to sift you, but I've prayed for you. And so we need to stand firm knowing that being a Christian is going to cost us something in the future. And then number three, fulfill your ministry. He says in verse five, fulfill your ministry. Like, look, there's things we're doing, whether it be partnering with A29 or all the different things. There's things that we're doing as an organization, but a church isn't a social club, right? A church is the body of Christ come together, hands, feet, ears, and all of you have a purpose. Hands do this, feet do this, ears do that. I don't know what the pancreas does, but it does something. That's the purpose of the body of Christ. So there's none of this like, I'm part of a church who does great ministry for me. If you're here, this is your home, this is your church, I'm begging you to join with us. We need you. Whatever it is that God has called you to do, that looks different for different people. We need godly men and women to help raise our kids. Men in particular. Guys, there's so few godly dads in this world today. Help us. Teach, discipleship, walk through life with one another. Even things like, I don't, I don't even, do we still call it set up crew, Don? 
Did we change that? I don't know. Whatever we are. The guys that come in early and set up here, man, it's so much more than just setting up a chair. It's discipleship opportunities. When people come to this church, just so you know, when guys come here and they're like, how can I get involved? How can I meet people? That's the first thing I say. Join up in here so that you can meet a group of godly men and serve. Those are discipleship opportunities to be able to walk with one another and continue to strengthen and build our church family up. Community groups, get involved in a huddle group. I I wish we had twice as many huddle groups that are half the size that all of them are. We just started one ourselves at Central Point. We've only been meeting for a month. It's already too big. Like I'd rather have smaller accountability, intimate relationships, and then going out as we're going to be doing and serving the community around us. But I'm begging you, man, don't sit the fence. Don't ride the pine. Help us. Serve Jesus and serve with us. We need you. And and giving, I'll say it, give. Give so that we can continue to further the mission of the gospel, so we can put Uganda in a church and they can continue to care for kids, so that we can continue to spread the gospel to a greater and greater and greater degree. But we need you all. And I just want to close with one little analogy and then I'll be done. I'm having to skip a lot because I talked way more than I thought I was going to talk. Out, out here today, there's tables set up with opportunities for you to sign up, get information, ask questions, complain, whatever the case may be, in, in all sorts of different ministries. Men's ministry, come talk to me about the retreat. I'll get you signed up. Children's ministry, we need your help. We've talked about we want to do an Awanas program on Wednesday nights. We need help with that. We want to get better and better and better at what we're doing and equip you better and equip you more, engage more people. We want to grow in those areas. So please take a moment to stop by, introduce yourself, get involved. If this, if you've, this is your opportunity. Um, would love to meet those of you that I haven't met, shake some hands, all that kind of stuff. Um, but, but there's a story that I heard that I, that I couldn't help but think about. It's the editor of Elle magazine. All of us guys read that, Elle magazine. <laughs> but maybe you don't know this story. Uh, there was a book that came out. It was called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. And it was made into a movie a few years ago that's the story of the guy who was the editor of Elle magazine. And in 1995 or 6, somewhere in there, he had a stroke that left him with a severe and really rare condition called locked-in syndrome. And locked-in syndrome meant he lost complete ability to move or control anything. Couldn't open his mouth, can't speak, can't move his tongue, can't move his hands, anything. His mind as sharp as it had ever been in his life, but cannot move, cannot speak. The only thing he could do is blink. And he actually wrote a book. They came up with a way for him to be able to communicate just by blinking. And it took something like 20 minutes for every word to write this book. It's an unbelievable story. But I was thinking about that. I wonder how many of us, and I'd heard it put this way before, I wonder how often Jesus thinks, I have so much I want to express to the world around. I have so much of myself I want to show to the world around. I want to reach out and comfort this person who's hurting. I want to reach out and speak to this person who's in sin and help them understand the danger that they're in. I want to go and I want to be able to share the gospel with others. And I've chosen the church as the body of Christ, as the method that we're going to do it. And I wonder how many times he feels like, Jeff, just move. Jeff, just say something. Be the hand, be the foot, do something. But we have an incredible opportunity. The mission of Heritage Christian Fellowship, all those E's, e, exalt, equip, engage. The real core of it is, is that because of the love of Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity to manifest or bring to life, if you will, the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world around us.
He desires to use us to change the culture around us. And the direction that the, the world's going, man, may a revival happen in this valley that makes the rest of the world go, we got everything together, but those idiots in Medford just can't seem to get on board. I pray that happens. Wouldn't that be amazing? It doesn't have to be. But even if it does, as we lock arms one together, God's purified and perfected the church he loves so much, we have the opportunity to continue. Actually, we have more opportunity to tell people about Jesus in this climate than we've ever had before. America is now pretty much the number one missionary nation in the world. And I don't mean sending, I mean we need them. So I'm asking you, however long you've been coming here, will you join with us? Be a part of this work that we're doing here and serve Jesus as we exalt the Lord together, as we equip the saints of God, and as we engage the world around us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's all stand.